Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. He just published a book this year, 2021, February of 2021. He published a book titled, I Have a Devil Inside Me, The True Story of Satanic Murder in Miami. And his name is Tony Monheim, spelled M-O-N-H-E-I-M. And Mr. Monheim is retired from the Miami-Dade Police Department, which he retired in in 2004 after a distinguished 30-year career with uh, his last 12 years being in the Homicide Bureau. He also had 16 years in the Robbery Bureau, and he also teaches criminal investigations courses. And his website is www.homicidetraining.com, so you can check out some of those criminal investigation courses there. But again, this book is uh, titled, I Have a Devil Inside Me. Pretty graphic information, so I just would like to give a warning to the listeners. It's probably not a good idea to have uh, sensitive listeners or kids around while we're talking about this case. It's really an excellent book, very well written, and you can see the uh, real knowledge of the former detective is in almost every chat is in really every chapter of this book. But he can talk more about that. So, Tony Monheim, are you there? I am. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who haven't heard of this book, can you talk about your background and how how what your experiences were in Miami, and then what? What began as this case, uh, I have a devil inside me. Sure. I uh, spent 30 years as a police officer in Miami. Uh, I'm originally from Illinois. I got a law enforcement degree from Western Illinois University in Macomb, Illinois, and uh, hated the cold, didn't like the winters in Illinois, so I decided I would move somewhere south. I didn't know where, but I thought maybe Miami. So I uh, had never been out of Illinois at that point in my life. I traveled down to Miami. Uh, actually, the college had some recruiters from Miami-Dade Police Department on campus one day, and they uh, interested me in the Miami-Dade Police Department. So I traveled down to Miami, took the testing, went through the testing procedures, went through the academy, and became a police officer. And initially, for the first 22 months of my career, I was a uniformed police officer, as all cops uh, uh, do when they, when they start out. And from there, I went to um, robbery. I, I became a robbery detective and a robbery supervisor, a robbery sergeant, for the next 16 years. At some point after 16 years, I decided I wanted to get a little more in-depth into investigations and uh, was recruited by a couple of detectives from the Homicide Bureau to come to Homicide, which I did. So I, I remained in Homicide for the, the remainder of my career, which is a 12-year span until I retired in 2004. 
Uh, and as you probably know, Miami at that time from the 80s to the 90s and into the 2000s was uh, probably one of the biggest hotspots for murder, homicide, police shooting investigations in the entire country, uh, particularly the 80s. In fact, I mentioned that in my book, how the 80s really defined Miami at the time through crime. Uh, we had a, a number of events that occurred, the Marielle Boatlift being one, the McDuffie riots being another, uh, crack cocaine, uh, just the importation of cocaine into Miami changed Miami dramatically from a sleepy little city into a booming met metropolis flush with money. Uh, banks just sprouted up on corners everywhere, and uh, th there were jewelry stores that opened, uh, just money everywhere. And that can be attributed to the, uh, the influx of cocaine. And cocaine, of course, came from Columbia. And along with the, the cocaine came murders and ripoffs, and cocaine ripoffs. So we, we, during the 80s, we had an unprecedented increase in homicides. And that's basically where I made my bones. I worked in those, those times, and that's where you learned how to be a detective and it was just overwhelming at times. The, the amount of the caseload was just um, overwhelming. In fact, during one year when I was in robbery, we had over 8,000 robberies, armed robberies in Miami alone, uh, handled by 30 detectives. So each detective really uh, learned his craft by doing the same thing over and over and over and over. It was a, it was a very tough time in Miami. Yeah, I mean, you can see that in the book. Like, you guys put down one case, pick up another one, even in robbery, in robbery or homicide. And then you came, you talked about some of these booby boys that I'd never heard of. Like, super ultra-violent ultra stuff was happening in Miami right there around the 80s. Like, very dangerous times. And really, I mean, I think you write in your book, too, the city itself grew. It must have grown really exponentially in the time that you were working there. Is that correct? It did, and and that, again, that can be fueled by the cocaine, the uh, the influx of cocaine. Uh, Brickell Avenue is one of the main financial centers in downtown Miami, and banks and branch banks throughout Miami they sprouted up overnight, and the money that was transferred into these banks back then in the '80s there was no ten thousand dollar limit that the feds had put on. Uh, depositing money, you could deposit as much money as you wanted any time. In fact, Colombian drug dealers would bring satchels, suitcases of money into the banks. And there was so much money at the time that they would burn up, literally burn up counting machines, trying to count this money. And they would eventually, it got to the point they would just weigh the money to determine how much money was there because it took so long to count it. So that, that, Drug uh, influence is what really propelled Miami into stardom, if you if you will, and uh, and it became a more uh, populous city because of that. Right. So that whole South Florida area just grew exponentially. All the condominiums, uh, all kinds of things for laundering that money too, and so you've probably you've seen many many things. Uh, I'm sure down there uh, during that time which led you to this case kind of at the latter part of your career, correct? That's true. I was just getting ready to, re uh, actually I had retired 
uh, during this case, uh, during the working this case, I, I retired. It was the last part of my career. I'd been in homicide for about uh, a decade, the past decade. And um, of course, working homicide in Miami, you see all kinds of cases. Uh, the murder cases that we, that we uh, were involved in in Miami were uh, bizarre, to, to say the least. But this one really caught my attention. And over the years, I always thought that this would be the case that I would like to chronicle. I would like to somehow uh, make sure that this case was remembered. And over the years, I had been contacted by several authors who had read about the case on the internet. They had maybe searched the archives of the Miami Herald and found out about the case and contacted me wanting uh, with the uh, intent of writing a book about the case. So several times I sat down with uh, several authors, went over my notes, gave them the information about the case and nothing. There was no book. No one ever published a book. They talked about it a lot, but nothing ever happened. So when the, the lockdowns for COVID occurred, I, I decided, well, this, this needs to be told. This story needs to be told. So I decided to sit down and write it myself. And I don't know if anyone has ever thought about writing a book. I can tell you this. Over the years, friends and family have heard my stories. And I, I, as you mentioned, I teach classes throughout the country. Uh, and I uh, tell people the stories about the homicide days in Miami. And everyone says to me, write a book. You should write a book. Writing a book is hard, I can tell you. It's very, very difficult. It's not just sitting down and writing. So I started writing a book because of COVID and because I thought that, uh, you know, I had some time, we were locked down, and I thought that the story needed to be told. But I found out how difficult it was, and many times I gave up. I started a chapter and I would give up. And if it wasn't for my wife who, who uh, prodded me along and, and gave me encouragement, I don't know if I would have finished it because it is really difficult to sit down and chronicle a case and write a book. Well, I can tell you your writing is excellent, but also your details and your experience really is uh, an exception to a lot of the true crime books that I've read. I've read quite a few. So you kudos to you for writing and taking the time to memorialize this. There's a lot of pictures, very graphic pictures in the book. A lot of it's very well detailed, much more so than other true crime books is, uh, that I've read. So that's another exception to kind of the, the true crime norm that's in this book. But for this case, can you talk about where it's really the where it started in Miami and your involvement? Sure. It, it's, it's basically a very simple case. It's a it's a not a whodunit. It's it's a, a love triangle. Uh, a woman who had two boyfriends, one of the boyfriends becomes angry. He's a, he's a Satan worshiper. He's not only a Satan worshiper, but he's into all kinds of different, what are, are known as, I'm sure you know, the left-handed path, uh, Paye Mayumbo, Santeria, Voodoo. He dabbled in all of these, but primarily in Satanism. And he decided that he was going to kill the ex-boyfriend of his current girlfriend. And in the, in the process of doing that, he used some ritualistic type, um, uh, uh, ritualistic things that he did during the case uh, that are very interesting, I thought. One of the things that we're very familiar with down in Miami is Santeria, of course. Santeria is everywhere. Uh, we're very familiar with Pai Mayombo. But in this case, because he was so involved in it, I really 
took a nosedive into some of these uh, occult practices and learned a lot about them, particularly Payamamo. We had a, a medical examiner by the name of Charles Wetley, who unfortunately just died a couple of years ago, who had a, uh, offered a class at the medical examiner's office on some of these occult practices. And that's where I learned most of uh, the forensics and, and how they're involved in homicide investigations from Dr. Wetley. In fact, I mentioned a case that he handled in my book. Yeah, you mentioned a case where he said he predicted that something would return within 21 days based on his knowledge of it, and it happened. So I thought it was interesting. When I was reading your book, I looked up Wetley because of his interest in the occult. And yes, unfortunately, he just passed away within the last year or so. But uh, the, the real case starts with the finding of a body part, right? Sure. Two young boys are taking a shortcut through a, an open field in Brownsville, which is a section of Miami. It's a inner city section of Miami. And they see what looks like a leg, a severed leg in some plastic bags. And they, they're thinking this is maybe some type of trick. Maybe some of the older kids are playing a joke on them. But as they get closer and start to prod the bag with, with a stick and turn it over, they realize that it is, in fact, an actual human leg. So they run home and they call their, they tell their parents and their parents call the police. And as the first initial uniform officer gets here, not only does he realize that this is a human leg and the left. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Left the left leg, but he also realizes that there is uh, probably a body about 30 or 40 feet away encased in two garbage cans that have been forced together. He can tell this by the stench, by the smell of death that's coming from these garbage cans and the infestation of flies that are covering uh, not only the body inside, but the outside of the cans. Right. So that's where it really starts. And they, that leads to try to identify who this person is. What happens once that person is identified? Well, we go to the trailer of, of the suspect. His name is Lazaro Galindo. He's 20 years old. He's a Latin male. And as we knock on the door of the trailer, when he and his girlfriend, who was the other part of this love triangle, open the door, we can tell that they're startled, that they're, they're wide-eyed, and we can tell that they're, they're trying to hide something. So as we walk in, we see that this trailer is a mess. It's just filthy, dirty. But we, in a corner of one of the rooms is a Payamayombo sh uh, shrine, which he, he refers to it as a shrine which is, you'll see pictures of it in the book. It's a kettle with a machete and some metal objects, a, a knife and some other things stuck down into the, the cauldron. Uh, I believe it's called a penda is what they refer to it as in, in Payamayumbo. And there are some uh, trinkets that he's offered as sacrifices to the, uh, the, the spirits. Payamayumbo believes in, in one God, but many stronger spirits that can be used 
to help to aid one uh, aid uh, a person in their life and help them with their uh, their problems. Uh, very similar to Santeria, but much darker than Santeria. Santeria is considered a white white magic religion. Payamayombo and Voodoo are considered black magic. So these, we, these come all the way back from West Africa. So they come up through the Caribbean. The practices are going back to like old voodoo type stuff. So they, they go back as far as the 1500s in Africa. And when the slaves were captured in Africa and taken to Cuba, they were forced to convert to Catholicism and to abandon these religions, which of course they didn't do. They kept uh, secretly engaging in this Payamambo. Payam, of course, in Spanish means stick. So you'll see in these in a lot of these cauldrons and around these shrines, small sticks that have been placed near the cauldrons. But uh, that's true that even though this is similar to voodoo, there are some uh, remnants of Catholicism that you see in these too. So there's, there's, it's, a, it's a, a hodgepodge of several things, particularly Santeria and voodoo and Catholicism. Right. And, he's, and these like offerings are supposed to go to manifest some spirit too, right? So they're throwing chicken feet and blood, really gnarly. And the pictures of the cauldron or kettle, very dark looking, machetes and, you know, really uh, sinister kind of a thing. And there was blood on the walls too of his trailer too, right? Exactly. He would sacrifice animals. He would sacrifice <clears throat> lizards. Of course, there's abundance of lizards and Iguanas down in Miami just running free. So he would capture those and, and kill them, sacrifice them, drain their blood into the cauldron, maybe pigeons or cats, dogs. It, some of these um, shrines, the, the people that keep these shrines even go so, so far as to kill horses or cattle to sacrifice to, to the shrine. And you're correct. He, he, when we were looking at the shrine, I noticed there was some blood spatter on one of the walls that looked like cast-off spatter. It was elongated, and that indicated to me that there's some kind of force that threw that blood onto the wall. And I asked him, I said, Lazaro, how did this blood get on the wall? And he thought very quickly, I thought, on his feet. And he said, oh, when I pulled the head off a pigeon, when I sacrificed one of my pigeons, the blood spattered onto the wall. But as it turned out, we tested the wall. It turned out it was the blood of the victim. We did DNA testing on the blood, and it became the victim's blood. Wow. So somehow they had had his blood or his body in there, and they cut off all of his the, the victim's fingers too, right? They never. Yes. Did you guys ever find his fingers? We never did. And that is one of the hallmarks of Paimayombo too, that the, the ultimate sacrifice is to use a human skull, or body parts, human body parts. Now, what traditionally what uh, the adherence to this religion will do is they'll rob graves. They will uh, go to a mausoleum and maybe take a skull and use that, or they may go to a fresh grave at a, in a cemetery and dig it up and, and cut off some of the fingers or maybe a hand and use that. So when we learned that he was in this Paimayombo, the and, and the, the missing fingers that we saw at the autopsy kind of made sense that maybe he had used these in some type of sacrifice. But to answer your question, no, we never did find those. Right. So he may have eaten them too, right? So like it was never, I don't know if it was ever clarified in your book, but yeah, really dark stuff. And I think the victim was, it was overkill. I think the autopsy you said 
like he was stabbed a million times but died from a blunt force to the head or something like that, right? He had been stabbed in front of Lazaro Galindo's trailer 17 times. He stabbed him initially, he kind of caught him off guard and stabbed him in the stomach a couple of times. And then as the victim fell to the ground, he knelt over him, stabbed him over and over and over in the throat, head and chest. And anyone who's worked homicides know that when you stab someone in the throat or the face or the upper chest, that's a, that's a sign of intense animosity or hatred. So, and, and overkill, and, and the, the fact he stabbed him 17 times. He then drug him because he was worried about some of the people in the trailer park witnessing what he had done or seeing the body. He drug him into his trailer. And as he drug him in through the front door, he heard the victim give out a gasp or a moan. Realizing he was still alive, he stabbed him the 18th time into the chest, and he actually stabbed him into his lung, and he could hear the the air being expelled out of the lung. He then took the hatchet from his cauldron, his Payamayumbo cauldron, and hit him repeatedly in the skull until, as he said, quoting him, until his brains came up. Yeah, just really incredible, like super violent. And this guy had a really creepy history too, not just that. Like he said he was he was sad he was killing animals from a very early age, right? That's true. In fact, his, he said that his family hated him because they knew how bizarre he acted as a child. He, always, he said he always enjoyed cutting up animals, either dead or alive, but preferably alive, because he liked to see the pretty colors, as he called it, when he opened up the animals. In fact, his family was furious at him because the family dog had puppies one day, and he took all the puppies with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And murder them, kill them by cutting them open, he said, just to see the pretty colors inside the little puppies. And as it turns out, from that day on, his family uh, was very angry with him uh, because of, of this these practices. So he... Even as a, a young teenager, he did not live at home. He kind of lived on the streets. And he, he said he was demon-possessed, right? He had some kind of entity. That's an interesting story. When when eventually I talked to him at the homicide office, that's when he tells me this. the title of the book. I have, He said to me, Sarge, I have a devil inside me, and it tells me what to do. So he proceeds to tell me the story about his uncle. He had an, an uncle who was a dope dealer, a drug dealer in Miami, who had enemies. And at a New Year's Eve party one year, he was assassinated, executed by some rival drug dealers who shot him in the back of the head multiple times. And Lazaro told me that his uncle was possessed by an evil spirit known as Candelo. The moment that his uncle died, that evil spirit jumped from his uncle into him because he was standing there next to his uncle when he was executed, jumped into him and has possessed him ever since. Wow. So, and it was like, 
And the way you portrayed it in the book is that this entity or being or Canelo, Candelo, was telling him how to conduct all these crimes. Exactly. Right? Like, exactly. He told Candelo, supposedly told Lazaro how to get away with the murder. He told him. In fact, he initially when he committed the murder, it was Candelo who reminded him that he had a switchblade knife in his pocket and that he should use that on the victim. So according to Lazaro Galindo, the suspect in this case, or the subject in this case, he was told by Candelo to kill this victim. And after he did kill him, Candelo told him, you need to get him out of the street. You need to drag him into your trailer. You need to get rid of any evidence. So he told him to put him in the bathtub, which he did. He drug him into the back bathroom, into a bathtub, and to run hot water on the victim to get rid of any fingerprints or any evidence, which he did. And at the autopsy, the medical examiner and the detectives on my team were kind of stymied, perplexed by the fact that only the upper half of the victim's body was decomposing. In fact, his face and neck and upper chest area were composing faster than the rest of the body. So there was, there was almost a line at the waist, at the belt line, where the bottom half of the body was not decomposing, but the upper half was. And it wasn't until we obtained a confession from Lazarus that we realized this was the water line from the tub. He had dragged him in the tub. He was not, the tub was not big enough to fit the entire body in it. So he stuck the legs up and the hot water was forced down onto the chest area and onto the upper part of the body. And they, the hot water accelerated the decomposition. And that's why there was only one part of the body that was decomposing as opposed to the other part. Right. So it's super brutal treatment of the body. And also uh, Galindo had something that's common often in like really brutal crimes is that he had cuts on his hand that implicated him, right? Exactly. That's very typical in a homicide where there are multiple stab wounds. We see it a lot as, as homicide investigators. One of the things that they don't, people don't realize is in the frenzy of stabbing, they stab themselves. This is called self-wounding. So self-wounding is part of uh, multiple stab wounds. In this case, of course, we had 18 stab wounds. And it, while they're stabbing a person, they don't realize that the blood is coming back up on the blade of the knife and on the handle of the knife. And uh, fresh blood is very oily and slippery. And the, the person's hands, the attacker's hands will slip down on the blade of the knife and they will self-wound themselves. Also in the frenzy, many times they'll reach back to stab. And of course, a stab wound is very painful. So the victims tend to fight back. And in the fighting uh, back, the, in the ferocity of the, the attack, the attacker tends to stab themselves many times. Many times it's in the lower buttocks or the back of the thigh as they swing the knife around to, to uh, attack their victim. And that's exactly what Lazaro Galindo had. He had self-wounding on his hands where the, his hands slipped down on the knife. And he also had wounds to the back of his legs and his upper thigh. Right. And you show that in the book. I mean, there's a lot of really great uh, kind of uh, forensic pictures and things like that of this whole case. And he also said that I think he said he had an overwhelming desire to eat flesh and drink blood. 
So this guy was a real piece of work. I mentioned that in the book, I mentioned that I've, I've been in close encounters and small interview rooms with hundreds of suspects that I've interviewed. And, and some of them that would, would uh, make Academy Award winning actors and actresses envious of some of the stories they tell me and some of them bizarre, but this was one of the strangest I've ever heard. He began to tell me that Galindo, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Candelo, the evil spirit that dwells within him was insisting that he kill the daughters of his girlfriend. She had two daughters and he wanted the oldest one killed first as a sacrifice. And he also wanted him to eat the daughters. He wanted them to cannibalize the daughters. Well, Lazaro said he was resisting this, this uh, strong urge to eat human flesh. And so as in order for him to combat this urge to eat human flesh, when his girlfriend was menstruating, he would drink her blood. And this would quell that urge to eat human flesh. And again, Candela was implanting this in him, wanting him to eat the uh, daughters of his girlfriend. And he told you, Galindo told you he was glad that you caught him, right? Because he felt like he was being taken off the street or whatever. Like he knew he that he was interested. He did several times. In fact, when I booked him into the jail, he said the same thing. He said, I'm glad that you got me. He said, if you don't stop me, I will kill again. I'll do this again. I can't stop. I'm glad that you got me. He said it several times throughout the course of the investigation. And he was, so he, the confession, he confessed and wrote, he drew a bunch of pictures and seeing, and there's pictures in your book where he's complying, like you're taking him to the sites of his crimes, right? He did. He took, we, we refer to that as taking him on location. So we took him on location to point out specific spots, particularly uh, one where he dropped the leg, which was, near Brownsville Elementary School, which is kind of interesting because he attended Brownsville Elementary School as a child, and he, he knew about that vacant lot across from the school. So he, he had used that lot as a, a shortcut when he would go home at night from school. So he thought that would be the perfect place to dispose of a body in the wooded area there. So that's where he threw the, the leg and the body. Now, of course, Galindo is telling him to do this, and, but I don't think Galindo had any intention of him dumping the body 30 or 40 feet away from the leg. I, I think that Galindo would have been smarter than that. And he wanted him to dump it someplace else, but uh, he didn't follow Galindo's, or I'm sorry, uh, Candela's instructions to the T. And he said like Candela was smart. Like he thought the demon was intelligent. I mean so much. And you suspected that this guy, this wasn't his first crime, although he never divulged anything to you. Right. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I did. And even the members of my squad, we all thought that because it just seemed too easy. It just seems so simple for him to do this and get and, and try and get away with it. I mean, he made some uh, colossal mistakes. There's no question about it, the way he disposed of the body, et cetera. But it, it just, the way he 
disposed of the body, the way he tried to, um, the way he cut off the fingers, the way he tried to dismember. And that's a, the, the reason the leg was found in the open field is because he thought he would dismember the body and spread it throughout Miami-Dade County. However, as anyone who has ever dismembered a body finds out very quickly, it's really hard to do. It's, it's difficult work. And so he just gave up after he cut off the, the leg. Then it was just too much for him. He decided just to dispose of the leg. Now, the reason uh, Candelo told him to get rid of that particular leg is it had on the calf a tattoo of the victim that said Argilio. And we, when we published that information to the news media, the victim's son, who was 20, 22 years old, came forward, contacted us at the homicide office, and that's how we identified who the victim was. He said, my father and I both have tattoos, Argilio, on our leg. I'm Argilio Jr. He's Argilio Sr. We both have tattoos on our leg that I gave him as a present the past Father's Day. We both had the uh, tattoos done at a tattoo parlor for a Father's Day present. So that's how we identified the body. That was it. And you had a very uh, detailed section in your book, chapter three or four, where you discuss how hard it is for murderers to get rid of bodies and how they don't think it through. And often that's like one of the clues or keys to solving cases. And that's interspersed throughout this book is your deep knowledge of uh, criminality, criminology, etc. So I highly recommend people check this book out. And you kind of had to fall. Like, I think he didn't go to court for like three or four years after his arrest, right? Seven years. Seven, wow. Seven years. He fired. He's retired, right? Yeah. He, I was retired. He fired five attorneys. We went through three different judges and I don't know how many different prosecutors until it finally came to trial. And he eventually decided he didn't want any attorneys and he was going to defend himself. The judge, of course, uh, tried to talk him out of that because he knew that it would be a fiasco in court, which it was. The trial was a circus, but he also uh, wanted to uh, have the, the witnesses, I'm sorry, the witnesses and the jurors sworn in on the Satanic Bible rather than the Holy Bible. He requested that the judge allow him to wear certain Satanic gear, Satanic garb. He wanted to wear a, a black cloak. He wanted to wear a pentagram into court. He wanted to wear certain satanic rings, and he wanted to have the jurors and the witnesses sworn in on the satanic Bible. Which right, and I think you, you said that he was a member of the Church of Satan by then, so he was all over the place in his ideas. But he really, I think he wanted to be like called the Lord or something, or God. I am God is what you said he stated. He, he as, had, as one of his aliases when he was arrested prior to this, he listed his name as Lord Diablo Galindo. So he even had these fantasies years earlier. Right. And a fairly young guy, 20 years old, not too old. So somehow he developed very different than other people. Like his background must have been really strange to be a, how much Paolo Mayumbe. Like you and I talked in the pre-show about this guy, Jesus Adolfo Constanza. His mom was a witch. He was involved in that. Have you ever, did you ever hear anything about this guy's family or mother or parents being involved in this kind of occultism? No, actually his, his family seemed very normal, which I was, I was surprised. I was shocked when, when I knocked on the door and spoke to his parents, they seemed very 
like very nice people, very, very normal family. They showed up during the trial and sat in the front row supporting them throughout the trial. Every day they were there, but they're just a normal uh, Latin Cuban family from in Miami. Uh, somehow he went astray and they're they, And I talked to them about that. And they really don't know what happened, but they did re, repeat the story about the dog, the puppies. And they thought that that was his downfall when he started doing that. They don't know why he started doing it, but he did. Yeah, that's really crazy. An excellent book. Highly recommend this book. Um, Tony, where is the best place for people to get I Have a Devil Inside Me? Amazon. Amazon. It's published through Amazon. And if they just go to the Amazon website, you can either uh, get a hard copy or a digital copy. I would recommend the digital copy if you have a, a Kindle because the pictures are much more clear. Uh, they're sharper in the, the digital copy than the... Uh, than the hard copy. Right. And there's a lot of pictures. It's a very detailed uh, story. And you can see a picture of this character, Lazaro Galindo, who's still in jail. They they sentence him to 35 years plus a whole life sentence, right? So he's never getting out. He was sentenced uh, to violation of probation for 45 years, two weeks before he got the life sentence. We Unknown to us, he had been on probation for lewd and lascivious acts with a 13-year-old girl. And when we arrested him for the murder, the probation officer told us about that prior case. So he received the 45 years for the violation of probation, and then the judge tacked on a life sentence after the 45 years run, ran, uh, ran out. So it was consecutive sentences. So he will, uh, in effect, die in prison. Right. I mean, it's incredible. And you followed this case. You went to the trial, too. So you kind of and kind of reached out to him, but he didn't really want to. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, talk with you, right? I did. After he was sentenced, after he received both sentences, I, I went to the South Florida Reception Center to talk to him for two reasons. Number one, I wanted to find out if there were other murders because we strongly, my squad and I strongly felt that this was not his first rodeo. This was just too easy. There's an old saying that the first murder is the hardest and they get easier after that. And I, I thought that was true with, with Lazaro. However, and, and the second reason was I always thought that his girlfriend, Yoslin, had more to do with this than he let on in his confession, at least in the disposal of the body. Maybe not in the murder, but I think she was somewhat involved, if not completely involved, in the disposal of the body. So I want to ask him those two questions, but he refused to talk to me. All right. So, yeah, something else. And your book has... 49 five-star reviews, which is uh, really an accomplishment for a first-time author. And if people want to check out your training and criminal investigation courses, it's homicidetraining.com, correct? Right. That's correct. Um, and if you, there's a contact out there, too, if people want to reach out to you or ask questions. Sure. Is that a good contact? Sure. Yeah. That be, that you can email me there uh, at uh, homicidetraining.com. Perfect. And again, the author's name is Tony Monheim book just published February 2021 is titled, I Have a Devil Inside Me, The True Story of Satanic Murder in Miami. 
Thank you so much, Tony. Sure, my pleasure. Take care. Stay there. See you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.